Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to be back here with you uh, to continue the journey we've been on. This will be part three of probably a five-part series. And so Pastor Jamie preached last week sort of a central uh, sermon in the midst of, of what we've been talking about, about trust and obey. And it's really the same theme, right? We titled the message, Believe and Have Life. And if you haven't heard you know, the first two uh, uh, messages in the series, you can go back and listen online. But believe and have life. And, and uh, you know, I was just, again, we don't really, the worship team, sometimes they have a sense of the theme I'm preaching on. And in this case, they, you know, they knew from the first two weeks. But talk about a perfect set relative to what we're talking about, right? The Holy Spirit. I mean, just about this idea of clinging to the cross. And so we're here, every, every one of us, we're here. And we are clinging to something. You know, we're clinging to something. And my prayer for each of us is that when we leave here, that God reveals that if that's not Jesus, that he makes clear to us the idols in our hearts and in our lives. And so believe and have life. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John sort of expresses his reason for writing and really reason for ministry, right? And he says this in verse 30. John chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. In other words, I'm testifying to some of the stuff he did, and he did more stuff. And he says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one through the Old Testament. He is the full, he is the means by which God's plan will be fulfilled. What began in the garden with Adam, Adam, what Adam couldn't do, what Israel couldn't do, what the priests and the prophets and the kings couldn't do, what you and I can't do, that God now through Christ is fulfilling that promise. The entire theme of the Bible, is that I will be their God and that they will be my people. And Christ alone makes that relationship possible. But that is the big story, that it's about relationship, that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the promised one that was to come, but that by believing this truth, you may have life in his name. That that belief means something. That that belief becomes so active that it turns to trust. And trust applied in your life is really faith. That's biblical faith. And so really the the overarching theme of everything we've been talking about is that we are called to participate in his kingdom now. That he has invited us not to wait until someday, not, you know, we come and we we understand the right things about Jesus and now we're, we're saved or we're part of the community of God and now we just sit around and we wait for heaven. We just complain the whole time we're here about how everything's bad and the politicians are bad, everyone's bad. And we just kind of hang out and then someday, you know, we're going to be in Jesus, with Jesus forever in heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches, though. The Bible teaches and Jesus says again and again that the kingdom is, is now, it's here, it's in your midst. It's within us. What Jesus is saying is that someday... You know, that we have this, again, in the Bible, we have this idea of heaven, and it's like, you know, a place in the clouds where there's harps, and, you know, we're not really sure. This God probably has a white beard, you know, there's some kind of... But the Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth where God will reign with his people forever. Yes. That's the future we have to look forward to. New heaven and a new earth. And Jesus is saying, that's begun now. That you are called to live as citizens of another place right now. So that when New Bedford looks at CFC, they see the, the, the body of Christ, the church of God, that people would come to know. When Jesus prays in John 17 that we may be united, he doesn't pray that we agree about everything all the time. He prays that there be such a unity in our hearts because our allegiance is shifted from self or from our whatever our allegiance was before Christ. It's now shifted to Christ. And if we're all in allegiance to Christ, then we're united. And so Jesus prays that that would happen. Why? So that people would come to know who he is. So we said a few weeks ago that to, gos- to Paul, and really the gospel always is this. It is the proclamation of the one true God in the midst of all the other false gods. 
That that's what the gospel is. It is declaring Jesus Christ alone is God in the flesh. Sacrifice for our sin and that through that transaction, we are invited to participate in his death and in his new life. And so the, the gospel, when it's preached in the Bible, is not manipulative. It's not persuasive in any human sense. I'm not saying, you know, you don't see places where Paul reasons and where Peter tells us, you know, be prepared to give a defense. There's a case for a reasonable explanation of spiritual things. But you are not going to argue somebody into the kingdom. You might pray them into the kingdom, but you're not going to argue them into the kingdom. And we see in Paul's ministry and Jesus' ministry, when, when the facts are presented, people make a decision. And when they make their decision, Jesus lets them walk away. He doesn't go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, on second thought, let me... No. He just offers what he offers and it's up to us to decide whether we believe him like Paul or whether like the rich young ruler, we walk away sad. And for the rest of our life, we wander aimlessly with a profound sadness because we know deep down inside that whatever didn't fulfill us then is never going to fulfill us now. And that no matter what we do and no matter how much we get and no matter how much we have and no matter what people think about us, that we're still going to feel that shame and guilt that was a result of sin unless we allow Christ to heal it. And so we're called to be reconciled to God and to be reconcilers. We're invited to be a part of God's community, which means participation in the kingdom now. I read this quote in the book I'm reading in school right now, and it says this, faith is not static. That is, we do not simply have faith in a moment. It is an ongoing state. This is part of what tells us that the gospel is about more than a transaction. Listen to what he says now. An act of faith initiates our new relationship with God. Theologically, this is absolutely correct. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. At the same time, living faith produces fruit. It always produces fruit. That's the expectation. When Paul talks about the, Paul, the power of the gospel, he talks about what God did in his life and what God did in other people's lives. And he talks about what? The change that's evident, not because of what they've done, but because of what Christ has done in and through them. That's the power of the gospel. So he's saying... An act of faith initiates our new relationship with God. It is a by grace you've been saved through faith moment. But that is the initiation. It is the entry point. And then he says, faith is not a one-time act. It keeps going. And so when we equate faith with belief, we're talking about an ongoing faith, not merely a moment of intellectual assent. This is why trust or reliance is a better synonym than belief. Faith means we're open to God and responsive to him. Faith means we are open to God and responsive to him. Without that responsiveness, faith is not faith. The best way to describe faith, and probably the fifth, not next week, but the week after, we might talk about this further. But everywhere in the, in the gospel, you see it throughout Acts, but when this idea of belief is preached, there's always two other words associated everywhere. It's turn and repent. The idea of belief always involved turning and repenting. And so we're going to, we'll really go deep, but I want to introduce that. Belief involves turning and repenting. Really the best way to describe the word faith as it was intended in, in the scriptures is really allegiance to. So that means that faith is shifting our allegiance from self, from our own goals, from our own desires, from our own wishes, from what society tells us is important, to God and his will for our lives. Faith is a shift of allegiance. You can't not shift allegiance and still think you have faith. Which means, and we're going we're gonna to really contrast two lives. We're going to look at Paul. And just so we don't think that we're talking about, you know, a life of full holiness so that we don't mess up or that we don't make mistakes or that what I'm saying is that if we really love God, we're never going to do the wrong stuff. That's not what I'm saying. Go back and listen to the first two messages. But Paul, who we're going to use as the example of somebody who gets it right, messes up a lot. In fact, one of the most human things in Scripture, you see Paul talks about it 
in Romans, right? He says, I keep doing all the time. This is, Paul's distressed by this. You read that, and it's not like Paul's like, you know, every now and then I still mess up. It's like Paul goes, man, like the pattern of my life is that I keep doing all the dumb stuff I don't want to do. And the stuff I want to do, the good stuff, I don't do it. And I don't really get it. Because I know that the law is good. Like King David, right? I delight in the law. I recognize the law equals freedom. But yet there's something inside me. Even though I want to do good, there's like, there's a, I'm at war in the flesh. Paul's conclusion is not, so I give up because I can't do it. That makes all the difference in the world. Because every one of us feel defeated at times. And when we're Christians, that doesn't eliminate that. But what do you do in that moment? I'll tell you what the enemy wants you to do. Give up. I mean, Paul should have given up. Joseph should have given up. David should have given up. Paul's in prison, right? Philippians, 16 times he writes the word joy. If I went to prison for preaching the gospel, I'd have a pity party for like a year, at least. My wife would be like, seriously? I'd be like, you don't understand. I gave my whole life to Jesus. And now Paul's like, wait a minute, this is an opportunity. I'm going to encourage the, the church. I'm going to write a letter, and that letter is going to contain the word joy 16 times. I'm in jail. What does that mean? That means that Paul recognized a peace that surpassed understanding. That means there was something different about Paul other than his circumstance, right? And we say all the time, God cares about your circumstance. He does, but he cares more about your condition. And so you can pray in your circumstance, Lord, change my circumstance. We've said before, the prayer in Gethsemane is a perfect example of a, of a godly prayer. That's what Jesus prayed. If there's another way, take this cup from me. Lord, change the situation. Provide healing, provide restoration, provide wholeness. But, but if not, y'all will be done. It's a prayer of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In the midst of, you know, being murdered for their faith. Of standing and going, I know God can save me. I know he will save me. But even if he doesn't, I will not bow down and worship another God. Because there is one true God alone. And so what Paul recognized is that compared to following Christ and being founded in him, there is nothing. It is beyond comparison. There is nothing of value. And that's, that's basically what we talked about these last few weeks. We said we're called to live out our faith in every aspect of our lives. Believe, repent, and obey. Surrender and trust. To live as kingdom citizens right now is ongoing actions. When we live as citizens of the world, what does that mean? Well, that means the certain, the certain responsibilities that we have, right? There's certain things society expects. There's laws, but then there's, there's just common sense. I mean, not that it's that common, but the point is that there's a way we're expected to behave as citizens. And so there is a way we're expected to behave as citizens of another place. And I've said before, the best testimony is when you meet somebody, I think they're a Christian. You know? Something about them. They just, just seem like, and then you find out they are, and it's like an encouraging thing. But then I think, I wonder, I wonder if when I'm in line, I wonder if when I'm driving, because I feel like I'm a good Christian except when I'm driving, right? I'm the only one. But I wonder in my everyday life if people see me, if they think there's something about that guy. And I'm going to be honest, and I've shared this before. I remember, and this was a few years back, and I'm, I'm sure it's happened more recently, but I remember a time that I was about to either say or, or do something, you know, probably respond to somebody. And I remember immediately thinking, you can't say that, man. You're a pastor. And then I thought, what a horrible way to look at that. And immediately, it was like that conviction where God said, that doesn't matter. You can't say that because you're a follower of Christ. You're an ambassador for Jesus. You've been given the ministry of reconciliation. You're called to express the love of God radically. What does Jesus say? Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who are your enemies. 
Because if not, what do you, you, right? And there's a quote that says that if you're only nice to people who can be nice to you or who've been nice to you, that you're not doing kindness, you're doing business. It's a conditional transaction. Jesus says the world does that. Everybody's nice to the people that they like or that are nice to them. We're called to live as kingdom citizens right now. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's in your midst. It's within you. The kingdom that will come. The city of God where we will dwell with him forever. The Garden of Eden was a foreshadow of that city of God. And Jesus is saying, you are called not just to wait for that day, but to live as citizens of heaven right now. To affect your world. To be salt and light so that people would come to know who he is. And so we said God does want our obedience, but only if he has our heart. Right? And so we looked at some scriptures. And we looked at scriptures where people were doing the right things, checking the right boxes. I came to church. I prophesied in your name. I gave. I wrote a check. I served in the nursery. I did all these things. Jesus, I did this. I did that. And he's going to say, but I didn't know you. In other words, and again, this goes back a couple weeks, but by way of recap, in other words, that's not the means by which you're saved. So clearly the Bible teaches that's not what saved you doing all the stuff. And then on another hand, and we're going to talk about this next week where the main scriptures, do you know what he uses at the end where he separates the sheep from the goats? You know what he uses as a deciding factor? What you did or did not do for the least of these how you engage the most vulnerable in your society. Now, do you think he's saying that's what saves you? No, he's saying if you're saved, that would be a natural result. Because if you're called to love radically, who better to love radically than those most in need of love? And so God absolutely plays favorites, and his favorites are the least of these, are those on the margins, are those whose society has forgotten. Why? Because there's something unique about them No, not about who they are as individuals. It's about their recognition, their spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They're realizing that they have nothing and they need it all. That until until Jesus is all you have, you don't realize that Jesus is all you need. Right? And And I was mentioning earlier in the first service, you know, in Revelation it talks about you think you're rich. You think you have everything, but you're naked and wretched and blind and pitiful and poor. Who's he talking to? He's talking to people who are successful on the outside. Everything's good on the outside. They clean the outside of the cup. And God's saying, I know your heart. So again, he wants our obedience. But only as the result of having captured our heart. David Wilkinson has a quote, and he's talking about the power of drugs to capture. And, and, but I would say that the power of sin to capture, it doesn't have to be drugs, it could be anything, pornography, money, materialism, whatever. But he says the power in drugs or the power in sin is so powerful, he says, but there's one that's more powerful who captures, but captures only to liberate. And Paul in Galatians 5 writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But then he says, stand firm, therefore, and don't allow yourselves to be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And we do. And the enemies convince us that we deserve it or that that's where, you know, maybe our whole life somebody's told us, you're going to end up a failure. You're never going to do it. The enemy says we're never going to do it. Our flesh says we're never going to do it. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so it's about recognizing the power in him and the power through him and recognizing our need. And so when we compare Paul and we compare the rich young ruler, we're going to see some things, and it's powerful. We said that Jesus came with an invitation for us to follow him in increasingly intimate capacities. That the book, the Bible is a book of invitations from God to mankind, urging us to become his partners and redeeming the world. I'll say that again. The Bible is a book of invitations from God to mankind, urging us to become his partners in redeeming the world, to participate in the kingdom now. Not to observe, 
Not to be a bystander, not to wait until you're, you know, I'm going to get in the game as soon as I got my skill level wherever. I mean, no. No, play. You're in the game. You've given your heart to Jesus, you're in the game. That's how that works, right away. You're not like me who never gets picked, even in volleyball, right? We have volleyball. When I get picked in volleyball, I know it's just because I'm Pastor Brian and people are trying to. This, I'm, just so you know, Raph, I am not fi- fixed by that at all. They'll have captains and they'll kind of look at me and they'll be like, Brian. And I'm just like, they're yeah, just picking me because... You know, it's like flashbacks from being a kid and just be like, why don't we just, everybody pick, stop, I'll just join wherever I want, because I guess that I'm not getting picked, right? I don't even know where I was going with that, but anyway. (laughs) Come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do we want to be burdened with our our past? Do we want to go back and, and... in a life of slavery, in a life of bondage, from the life of freedom that was bought, whether we think we deserve it, whether we think we're, you know, it's, whether we think it's just something the enemy tells us that that's, you know, or somebody tells us that that's our destiny. We look at other people, maybe we feel like we're not as good as them. And Jesus says, come to me, and I'll give you rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he's telling that to people who were burdened. They were burdened to make a living. They were burdened in everyday life. You think life's tough now? Life was tough then. I love when people say, oh, you know, things are getting worse and worse. What's the reference point? We used to throw people to lions for fun and we'd watch them. I mean, we're almost there now, but what's the reference point when things are getting worse? The cult prostitutes? I don't know. I don't. Things are always going to be worse. Things are always going to be bad. Human beings from the fall, from the entry of sin have been bad. Immediately sin enters the picture, brother kills brother. And that shame and guilt, that shame and guilt that's part of that original sin that we've talked about in Genesis, Christ came to redeem that, to say no longer should you feel that shame and guilt. Instead, you'll feel conviction, you'll feel godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to life, but that's a different thing than regret and shame and things that keep you on the sidelines. I'm not good enough. I know, you're not. I'm not. He is. Come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Talking to people that had burdens in the world and talking to people who had burdens in the church. The spiritual system of the day. They were burdened by that. And Jesus is going, stop. The first step. I know you're burdened. I know you're restless and tired and filled with anxiety. I, I know. And I'm saying, come to me. And I'll give you rest. I mean, if there's anyone in this room that doubts that, I, I just ask you, take him up on that invitation. It's a money-back guarantee. I've heard a lot of people with a lot of regrets in their life for a lot of things. I've yet to hear somebody say, I regret that I gave my life fully to Jesus Christ. Not a single person. I've done a lot of funerals for people whose plan B was to, you know, plug into the things God had for them. That's my plan B. Well... Come to me. Believe in me. Follow me. Abide in me. It describes what the life of a, of a Christ follower looks like. And I love abide in me because that means make your home in me. Find your refuge in me. Let me be your source of comfort and strength and peace. When everything around you is falling apart, being in the presence of God alone is the source wanting to run to him in times of trouble instead of the drug or the drink or the girl or the guy or the money or the whatever. Who's your source? What idol is on the throne of your heart? First invitation is the invitation to come to him for rest, to find the source of your longing in him. It's an invitation to stop being restless and everybody who doesn't accept that invitation, as sure as I'm standing here, will live the rest of their lives restless and anxious and searching. And no matter what they do, and no matter what they get, and no matter who they're with, it'll never be enough. The second invitation is to discipleship, right? We said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men in Mark 1.17. 
Christian discipleship gives us the privilege of being associated with Christ intimately. We said last week, a couple weeks ago, whatever, a self is slain and the spirit reigns, the fruits of discipleship are bound to be seen in our lives. If self is slain and the spirit reigns, the fruits of discipleship are bound to be seen in our lives. A true disciple of Christ will bear fruit. That's the expectation. It's always the expectation. And when people will say, well, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. And then I point out that actually, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And I don't think you need to go to the Greek for that. Now, what does it mean? That we can be perfect? It means that he's attained perfection in us, but we're called to walk in that. What I tell people when they say, well, you know, I can't be perfect. And I'll say, so what? You just give up? And they'll say, yeah. I'll say, do you have kids? And they'll say, yeah. I'll say, what kind of parent are you? I'm a pretty good parent. What kind of parent do you want to be? And then immediately, usually at that point, they, they understand where I'm going. Sometimes they're still not sure. I'm like, would you say, do you want to be a perfect parent? Yes. Can you be a perfect parent? No. But you try. Why? Because the stakes are high. Because you love your kids unconditionally. And first, the reminder there is that God loves us that same way. So I know it's hard to believe, but sometimes I'm unlovable. That's, you guys didn't think, find that hard to believe at all. Everyone's like, yeah. That's not where I was expecting that to go. And I, and I sometimes really, if I'm honest, say, I don't know why God would love a guy like me. But when I look at my kids, it doesn't really matter what they've done. I love them. I can't love them less. Sometimes when they're doing the dumbest stuff, they get more of me because they need more of me. And when I look at them, to me, they're perfect. And it helps me to remember that that's how God looks at me and you. That we are the apple of his eye. Zephaniah says he dances over us with great joy. That when you look, and earlier in the service I saw Sam's little baby girl and then Dylan had a little baby boy, and I'm like, you know, this, this perfect little, right? And God looks at us with that kind of a love. And here's the other thing. He expects that as spiritual parents, as not only the benefactors of reconciliation, but the deliverers of it, that we ought to recognize that the stakes are high. That people need to come to know Jesus and that how we live and how we love and what we say and what we do has an impact. And so be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Align your, your views and your values and your priorities with him because people need to come to know Jesus. And it's important that we recognize that. That each of us have a responsibility not to live perfectly but to strive in Christ. That he didn't set us free so we could be like, this was fun, but I'm going to go back because I was comfortable, because I feel like that's what I'm worth, because everybody tells me, whatever it is. I've seen more people leave, like, you know, Teen Challenge is just the context. I've seen more people leave a 12-month program that can change your life to do five years in jail because they knew what five years in jail looked like and they didn't know, and it was scary. Taking steps of trust and faith. See, Jesus invites us to live in the realm of God. Abide in me and I in you, John 15, 4. And so he said, salvation is not an occasional rendezvous with deity, it's an actual dwelling with God himself. And so we can say, like Paul in Philippians 3, you know, when, 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 we, when we decide what's important, when we, when we figure out what metric we use to evaluate lives, What's important? How do we decide? The, what is the standard we use to determine who's good or you know, who's successful? And so Paul, we said a couple weeks ago, Paul's like, look, if you want to go toe-to-toe with my resume, let's do that. Here's what I did, and here's who I was, and here's who I knew, and here's how I lived. And then he says this, Philippians 3, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Everything I've done, everything I've had, everything people thought of me, my reputation, all of it. He continues, for, the, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things 
and I count them as rubbish. I want us to understand Paul's heart. I want us to see the same Paul who kept saying, I mess up all the time, continues in his pursuit of perfection. Why? In Christ and through Christ. Because he recognizes who Jesus is. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, uh, rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I may share in his sufferings. That I may become like him in death. That's one way to view things. Paul, when he gave his life to Jesus... His life did not become easier. By any standard, his life became increasingly more difficult. That's the invitation you don't get heard preach a lot, right? Hey, come follow Jesus. It's going to be harder than your life is now. But it's true. But it's going to be better. In fact, it's going to be incomparably incomparably better. There's going to be no comparison. Because it's hard, but it's beautiful. And it's a life of of trust and faith and difficulty. And I've said to you before that people say to me, it's really hard to be a Christian, Pastor Brian. And I'll say that's true, but what's even harder is not to be a Christian. What's even harder is to figure it all out on your own. What's even harder is to be your own God. To live a life and no matter what you do and what you get and what you see and what you say, it's just always, eh. To just bide your time. To say, like we said a few weeks ago in the Old Testament, in the morning I wish it was night, in the night I wish it was morning. Just wake up and be like, man, when's this day going to end? Just another day. And to that, Jesus comes in and says, come to me, all you who are weary. Come to me with your longing. Come to me with your desires. Come to me with your needs, and I'll give you peace and rest, and you'll find joy. And if you don't believe me, Take him up on his invitation. So I want to explore again the story of the rich young ruler this morning. And even that title, rich young ruler, says a lot, doesn't it? It seems to suggest the very things that we've determined in society to be important. Youth and beauty and power and prestige and wealth. And so here's this guy who, like Paul, has an impressive resume who, like Paul, is somebody who has a good reputation in society, who, like Paul, seems to have arrived. I mean, he set goals and he crushed them, right? And and, and there's some things I want to point out because we can read this story and we can miss. I've heard so many people tell me the story is about giving away all your money. And it is about that, but it's not just about that. It's about that for the rich young ruler. It's a story about idolatry. It's really the opposite of Paul. It's somebody who had a life similar to Paul and had a decision to make and made the opposite decision that Paul did. Now we know what happened in Paul's life. Was it easy? Was it? No, but he didn't have, he didn't have regrets. Again, this is a guy who's in jail. Let me encourage the church. Be joy, be joyful. Mark 10. Verse 17 through 27. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I want to point some things out. And you might say, well, we haven't really read a lot. There's actually a lot there. There's a lot there to flesh out. First of all, As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt down. That is an extraordinary way for him to respond to Jesus. He was a man of stature. So the fact that he ran and knelt down shows you he was deferent to Jesus, which is something to note. The fact that he ran to meet Jesus, and again, you know, he doesn't have to hurry. It's on his own time. Shows up to meetings when he wants the meetings to begin. That kind of a guy, right? And so he's so eager that he runs up to Jesus. He's so different that he kneels down to Jesus. And what? 
he has a spiritual question, which means that whatever he has done, whatever he has, and whatever his reputation is, he is thinking of spiritual things. He's really got a lot going for him. He's really got a lot going for him. Now I would say the, the first thing to note would be that his, his question is wrong in the sense of we should not try and determine who God is relative to what we need or want or what he does for us. So he's seeing very much, he's looking at, at Jesus, he's looking at God as kind of like, well, I, you know, I have this, I have this, I have this, eternal life. What do I got to do to get that too? So he's not asking the question right. We should determine who we are in light of who God is revealed in Christ and invites us to partake and become one with him. Paul recognized who Christ was and what the invitation looked like. See, what I want you to understand is that nowhere in this exchange is Jesus trying to convince or persuade or manipulate or even explain. All Jesus is doing is unveiling to this young man what his idol actually is. Because Jesus knows where this man's heart is. And Jesus knows what decision he's going to make. And this entire interaction is intentional on Jesus' part to reveal to the man the decision he's already made and where his allegiance lies. See, the one thing we can do is like Paul give it all to Christ and mess up and fail, but to continue to pursue in the community of Christ, to continue to pursue the things of God. And we can fail and we can flail, but we can continue to follow. Or like the rich young ruler, we can consider the invitation and we can walk away. The one thing we cannot do, and I've seen countless individuals in my time in the church think they can do, is pretend you're a follower like Paul was and walk away like the rich young ruler. And I don't care what you've heard preached before. This is not my opinion. This is the word of God. And so we're going to see in this exchange, we're going to see this unfold. And so he was eager. He was searching. He was a spiritual seeker. He deferred to Jesus, even though he himself was dignified. And so verse 18, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, who do you think I am? In other words, you're recognizing something about me. You're right about it. Is that going to change anything? Because there are people in this room, right? We, we know who God is. We know who Jesus is. We're sure of it. We're just a long way from trusting him with anything in our lives. And you'll stay an observer, and you'll stay on the shelf. And again, that's not, I'm not saying you get it all right, and it's not a works thing. That's not what we're saying. Participate in the kingdom now. That's what we're saying. We're not all strong all the time. Sometimes we're weak and we need each other. And sometimes we're strong and we help each other. What we're not called to do is sit on the sidelines and observe each other just to be cheerleaders. We're all cheerleaders from each other, right? But that's not all we're called to do. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then Jesus says this to him in response to his question. What must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. I mean, and then he lists them, right? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud on your father and mother. It's interesting to note that there are 10 commandments. Four of them have to do with the way we relate to God, and six of them have to do with the way we relate to other people. And Jesus just tells him about the six that has to do with the way he relates to other people. And the man probably couldn't, you know, it's probably the best, but he's like, this is going to be great. Probably, right, like, this is like, oh, that's what it means? Crushed it. I mean, right? That's what he says. Verse 20, teacher, I've kept these things from my youth. I've been doing that since I was a kid. Boom, done. Another thing off the checklist. What now? Jesus didn't deal with the four that had to do with his relationship with God. And now he's not even, this is not even like, like if you talk to a PR person or, or, or if you read like a book about negotiation or, I mean, this is just aggressive. What Jesus says next is just, it doesn't even seem like he eases into it. 
Jesus just immediately says this, looking at him, Jesus showed love for him. And it's very powerful to me, that, that sentence. Because I think in my life, how many times could I say, and Jesus looked at Brian, and he had a great love for him. You know why? Because he knew he was going to make a decision that was going to hurt himself, and it was going to hurt others. And Jesus loved him. But he doesn't chase him. And he doesn't change the message, and he doesn't lower the demands. In fact, what he says is so radical. Looking at him, Jesus showed love to him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. It's really a remarkable exchange. It's really what happened to Paul. And Paul said, I recognize that compared to following Jesus, compared to treasures in heaven, that there's nothing in this life that comes close to that. You win in that exchange. There is no scenario in which you come close to losing in that exchange. And this entire conversation has been to unveil to this young man that you're thinking of it all wrong. Your eyes are only looking at the material. All you can see is what's in front of you to the point you can't even see me. It reminds me of when Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth when truth embodied stands feet from him? And so the rich young ruler has a decision to make. Either remove the idol from the throne of your heart and place Jesus there or walk away. Jesus doesn't even go, all right, we're going to ease into this slowly. We're going to start you giving 1% and then slowly, I mean, why? Because Jesus is going, if you understand the difference between what I'm calling you to, And you understand, now we know that the young man understood that what he had and did didn't fulfill him because that's why he ran up to Jesus in the first place. So he was spiritually hungry, but Jesus doesn't try to say, wait, 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 hold on, let me me talk about it again. Now we know he loves him, we know he loves him. We know he loves him, but his mind's made up. Jesus doesn't just say, no, all you got to do is believe who I am. He doesn't manipulate. He doesn't convince. He doesn't cue the emotional music. He doesn't lower the standard. He doesn't say, give some of your money away. Because this man knew, and if we only knew how much we gain and giving it all up for Jesus. Paul knew. Not because Paul was remarkable, but because Jesus was remarkable. And Jesus is remarkable. And the man had his mind made up, and Jesus is just showing him that. He's saying, your allegiance lies to yourself. You're your own God. Same problem with Adam and Eve. You think that you're gaining and you're losing. We said a a few weeks or or a month ago, we talked about a monkey trap. And we said a monkey trap is a cage, and it has a hole in it, and there's a banana in it. And all the monkey has to do is reach his hand in and he can grab the banana. But when he does that, the hole's not big enough for him to pull his hand out with the banana. But he wants the banana. That's all he wants is the banana. The banana is the most important thing to him. And he's going to hold on to that banana thinking that's everything he needs and it's going to be his death. Because all somebody has to do is walk up and grab the monkey. And all the monkey had to do is let go of the banana, and he would have been free. And all the rich young ruler had to do is let go of his money, and he would have been free. And all we have to do is let go of our past, let go of our pride, and we'll be free. At least he's honest. At least he doesn't go and tell his friends he follows Jesus because he knows who he is. In verse 22 it says, but he was deeply dismayed by these words. And he went away grieving, for he owned much property. He was grief stricken. You know why? 
Because he knew deep down inside that which had not fulfilled him up to this point would never fulfill him. But he couldn't do it. He just couldn't let go of the banana. And if you're here, and we all have a past, we all have a today, this moment, the things we hold on to, you know, we'll say, Lord, you can have 99%. And then we're like, that's pretty good, right? I mean, and he's going, but that 1%, that's your idol. That 1% is what keeps you on the sidelines. That 1% is what keeps the clay on the shelf. God can't mold what we don't give him to be moldable. And when he does, I'm not going to tell you when you give your life to Jesus, it's going to be better in the sense of the standards the world uses. I'm going to tell you it is overwhelmingly better in every sense. That when I say there's no better life, I mean, you know, people laugh that I cry all the time. I haven't had a bad cry in a long time, though, you know? My cries are all good cries. I cry because I am overwhelmed. (laughs) I'm good. Overwhelmed by the grace of God. I mean, I am just so overwhelmed by how good God is. That's why I cry. You know, and people, I, you know, I had somebody say once, you know, you know, no offense. I mean, some people think you take things a little, you know, a little kind of, a little over to the top with the Jesus thing. I was like, those same people didn't think I was over the top with the drug and drink thing, though. I was, I was good then, right? I'll, I'll, I'll leave those standards, right? You know, or people will say, yeah, Christianity is a crutch. You know what I mean? I don't need a Christianity. That's crazy. I don't... <laughs> It's my number. It's going to come up. Yeah, you Christians are weak. All right, thanks. And Jesus, looking around, says to his disciples, how hard will it be for those who are wealthy or comfortable or self-sufficient or relying on what they do or have done to enter the kingdom of God? And his disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus responded again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. See, the rich young ruler recognized what he couldn't do. The problem was he didn't recognize what Jesus could do in him. It was fine that he looked and it was like, I can't, I don't have the power to walk away from this. That wasn't even the mistake he made. The mistake he made was not looking at Jesus and saying, I want to, I believe, help my unbelief. See, Paul recognized the power in Christ. And this man just simply looked at what he could or could not do. And so if you're here and again, you're holding on to things, let him go. They haven't fulfilled you yet. They're not going to fulfill you ever. We spend our whole lives sufficiently distracted until we get to the end or something happens and then we stop and go, what's it all about? I guarantee you that you can know peace with God, peace of soul, peace of mind, and joy you've never experienced John says it this way in Revelation. He's describing his vision from God, right? He's describing what we've said, what the Old Testament talks about, the full plan of God. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's what Jesus has accomplished, that through relationship in and through Christ that we can be God's people together. And this gets read all the time at funerals. But this is a promise for all of us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, saying, Look, God's dwelling place, where God abides, is with his people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God and they will be, and sorry, will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things have passed away and he who seated on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. Verse 
in our lives right now, Jesus is making all things new. We say before that he's turning our mess into a message. I am making everything new. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We are called together to be the people of God. And sometimes in our individualistic viewpoint, we lose what it means to be part of a collective identity. That yes, we're all individuals, we're all uniquely, wonderfully made, but we're called, it's an invitation that we are, when we are partakers with Christ, that we would come together. And again, we said in John 17, Jesus isn't saying, I, I pray that you all weigh the exact same thing and you're all, you think the exact same thing and you vote the exact same way. No. He's saying, I pray that you would be one like the Father and I are one. Why? So the world will come to know. That the kingdom of God operates differently. Rugged individualism is not Christian. And so we gather together to be encouraged and equipped by the word of God, by the spirit of God, by the presence of God, and empowered to do the work of God. There are no spectators in Christianity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the responsible person seeks to make his or whole life a response to the call of God. Why don't we stand? Lord, you know the, you know the burdens here right now. You know the brokenness and the disappointment the sorrow the anxiety the fear but God you've overcome all those things and you invite us to be restored and renewed to be strengthened and empowered to be healed and made whole in your presence Lord you offer us a new life not an improved old life but an entirely new way to be and Father, you ask that we just open our hands and open our hearts. That we say all the time that salvation is free, but it's not cheap. That it's a life for a life. That Jesus gave his life, that we would have new life. And so Father, break the strongholds. Break the addictions. Increase our faith. Increase our hunger and thirst for your presence in our lives, God. Let us experience the living water. Breathe into us the breath of life. We are your children, God, and we know we're loved by you, but it's so easy for us to forget. And so this morning as we worship you, not just with our words, but with our hearts, God, impress upon us the love you have for us and the freedom we can find in that love. In Christ's name I pray.